0: we are continuing our series called Citizens of Another Kingdom, where we've been looking at different areas of life, and how do we live as a citizen of the kingdom in that area? How do we live as men, women, and children who've cemented themselves to the reign and rule of Jesus Christ? Or how do we live inside of systems that are reflecting the reign and rule of Christ? As we've looked at different areas, as we've been Tonight or this morning, we come to the area of sex and sexuality. This is an important area for us to discuss. And you're maybe going, "Why are we talking about this in church? Like, why is this what we're talking about this morning?" Well, it's an important area for us to discuss because the kingdoms of this world they have a lot to say about this area, and so we want to look at what does God have to say about this area. What does He say as He reveals Himself through the Bible about this area of sex and sexuality? And as we get going, I want to give you four important realities before we start the message. There's four things that we really need to uh, get worked out before we dive in. The first one is that sex and sexuality has been distorted for all of us. It's been distorted for all of us. There isn't any of us that come with an undistorted view or an undistorted experience. All of us, by the fall, have had this affected. And so we all come going, God, would you help Would you help me to see what it is that you want to do? God, would you help me to see how you've designed this, how you've made this, how I should use this gift? Would you help me, God? Because there's areas where I'm missing the mark. Would you help me to see this? The second important reality is that our society is almost unimaginably saturated with sex. It is almost unimaginable how much it has gotten in the fabric of everything that if you drive down the road, it is rare if you don't see at least one billboard that's using at least sexual attraction to try and sell some sort of product. Uh, But oftentimes, if you watch commercials, they'll be using sex to sell something that has nothing to do with sex. So they want to sell a hamburger and they could just tell you this is a delicious hamburger, but instead they'll put a girl in a bikini and have her roll around in a car and eat the hamburger and then that's going to make you want to buy the hamburger. Or they'll want you to buy a car and so they'll put someone who's sexually attractive behind the wheel of the car and they'll go, oh, if you drive this car, you look like this, or you'll get somebody like this. And so they use sexual attractiveness to try and sell a product that has nothing to do with it. Or if you think about books or movies or TV shows, if you watch or read Something that is above probably um, maybe like 16 years of old, the audience is directed at is above 16 or 17 or 18. I'd almost guarantee you that one of the main plot points in the show is about whether this character is going to sleep with this character. Or it's about how this character did sleep with that character, now it's really awkward, and what are they going to do? That's a major plot point in the show. And so, our society is saturated with this, it's everywhere. And as we're saturated with it, it's important for us to realize that there might not be a place where there is a bigger chasm between what does the kingdom of this world have to say about sex and sexuality and what does God have to say about it? How does the world say we should relate to this and how does God say we should relate to it? There's this chasm between the two, which can create the fourth reality, which is as we live for longer and longer over here, surrounded by it, The more that we've been affected by this, the more that it's going to affect our view of what God has to say about it. And so what happens is we come to the Bible and we read about what God has to say about it and our gut reaction can be, I don't think that's right. Well, this doesn't sound right. Is this right? I don't know. Maybe that worked for people a hundred years ago, but I don't think that works for people today. That it can create that kind of reaction instead of us thinking uh, more deeply about it. And so what I want us to do this morning is I want us to um, look, what does the Bible have to say about this? What does God reveal to us through this? And then what does that mean for us and how should we respond in light of that? And so this is what I'm asking. Would you please give me 30 minutes? Would you, for 30 minutes, would you uh, try to stay engaged? Because I know it's tempting to say, I'm gonna shut my brain off. I don't wanna hear about this. I've already made my mind about this. Would you stay engaged for 30 minutes and just see what is it that God has to say? Because is is it possible there might be a better way? Because if you look around in the world and how the world is relating to this, what you see, there's a lot of pain, a lot of brokenness, a lot of hurt. And so maybe there's a better way for us to use this. And Jesus wants to share that with us this morning. And so I don't know what your story is. I don't know if you've been coming to church for a long time and you're like, okay, I'm not sure if I need this, but I'm here. Or if you're like, I came to Christ two weeks ago and I just became a Christian and none of this is, all this is new to me. Or you're like, my neighbor's been trying to get me to come to church for like months and I finally decided, and this is what they're talking about? Like, what in the world? And your neighbor's going, no, not today. Like of all the days. Why is this the day they had to come to church? But I want you to know, whatever the reason is you're here, I'm so glad you're here. And I believe that God brought you here with a reason. I believe there's something God wants to do in your heart, in your life. And so would you please give him 30 minutes this morning? Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your love and your goodness. God, I thank you for your compassion to us. God, thank you that you reveal these truths to us. That God, you could have hidden them, you could have kept them from us, but instead, God, you have made them known to us. God, would you give us ears to hear them? God, this is a difficult topic. And it's very contrary to what the world would tell us. And so it's tempting to shut our ears and to say, I don't really want to hear this. But God, would you give us ears to hear? And God, would you give us hearts to receive that we would consider, we think deeply, and we would maybe make a change in our life based on what we find out this morning. Or it would strengthen a commitment we've already made. God, we love you. We thank you for your son. Pray this all in his name. Amen. So we are going to begin with God's good design for sex. God's good design for sex. This is where we're going to start. God has a good design for sex, and He is gracious and kind enough to share it with us. So, in Genesis one, verse twenty-seven, we find uh, His revealing of this. Uh, so, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to the first chapter of the Bible, first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter one, verse twenty-seven. And this is what the writer of Genesis says. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So don't miss this. God is the creator inventor. He had the idea behind sex. That it says he created mankind in his own image. He created them male, and he created them female. So he creates the male with all the male anatomy. He creates the female with all the female anatomy, and he designs them to come together to reproduce. Like he has created them for this. Like he has designed them. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't a mistake. It was on purpose. So he is a creator of sex. So God's not ashamed of sex. He's like, don't talk about that around me. He doesn't do that. He goes like, I created this. Before there there was anything, I invented this. I was like, this is what we're going to do. I'm going to create all these things and I'm going to create humans and this is how they're going to make more humans. And then he says in verse 28, he says, God blessed them, Adam and Eve, first man and woman. He said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. That's a lot of kids to subdue the earth. A lot of kids to fill the earth. You have to have sex to make more kids. He's going, be fruitful. Go forth and have sex. So God is not anti-sex. God is the creator of it. He has formed it. He thought of it. But then he gives us the boundaries for it. He gives us, where is it that I've designed this thing to go really well? And where is, it, where is it that if you choose to use it outside of that, it's going to go really poorly? So if you flip over the page to chapter 2, verse 24, we read this. It says, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. So if you know about Genesis 2, this is what the writer writes after Adam meets Eve. So Adam, he God creates him, he has to name the animals, so he's naming the animals who are coming to him in pairs. He goes, It's male, donkey, female donkey, male zebra, female zebra. And he's going through that, and he notices that there's no, like, version of me that's a female. And so then God's like, it's not good for him to be alone. I'm going to make someone to go with him. So Adam falls asleep. He wakes up, and he sees Eve, and he bursts into song. He's like, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This is woman. This is amazing. This is what I've been looking for. And then it says, that is why a man leaves his father and mother, and he's united to his wife. Because at one point they were one, and now they're two, and now they're going to be reunited as one. And so he gives them the boundary of a man leaving his father and mother, that they leave their home of origin. And so he leaves his home, and she leaves their home, and they form a new home. And inside of this, they can become one flesh. And so God gives us this marriage blueprint. Marriage is designed to be a lifelong commitment between a man and a woman who have left their families of origin and have been united together. They have cleaved together emotionally, financially, spiritually, and have come to live together under one roof. So we talk about leaving and cleaving, that they leave their families of origin and they cleave, they come together. They do this emotionally, financially, spiritually, and they live together under the same roof. And then once those things have happened, this commitment, this lifelong commitment has been made of I'm saying yes to you and I'm saying no to everybody else. Once that commitment has been made, then they can experience the gift of sex in a way that's life-giving. That outside of that, it is going to be a process of taking from one another, trying to get something, but it's about me. It's not about um, giving to the other. It's not about this life-giving experience of I'm committed to you. So that's so different from the kingdoms of this world. The way the world deals with sex is it's consumeristic. That sex is a commodity to buy or to sell or to trade. That participants, they consume one another and they're disinterested in what is it going to do to the other person most of the time. It's, I want the enjoyment of this. This is a means to an end. You want to enjoy this too. Well, let's do this together. And then we'll stop when one of us doesn't want it anymore. That it just keeps going. And then what happens is, go, ah, you know, you're not doing what I want you to do anymore. It's not feeling the way I want to feel. I'm just move on to somebody else. Go find somebody else. And it's consumeristic. It's about, do I get what I want out of this? Or it's a commodity to trade. That I want something and I'm willing to trade sex to get it. So I want love or affection. I want to feel like I'm wanted or that I'm cherished or valued. And I think that you want sex. And so I'll trade that in order to get that feeling of love from you. Or perhaps it's a thing of, I think if I don't give this to you, you won't stay and I want you to stay, so I'm willing to trade this to you in order to keep you in this relationship. It's not about a commitment. It's about, if I give you this, you'll give me that. And it turns it into a means to an end, that the people involved are means to an end. Each of them wants something, and is am I gonna get it out of it? If I don't, then I'm gonna move on to somebody else who will give me what I want. But again, that's so different from what God has designed it to be. His design for it is it's supposed to be an act of self-giving love inside of a commitment for life. Inside these participants, they don't give themselves to keep the other in the relationship, they give themselves because they've already committed and it's safe to give. It's safe for you to know all of me and me giving myself all of me to yourself, uh, me giving all of myself to you is this act of me saying no to everybody else. That I do this with you and nobody else and it binds us together. So Pastor Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, sex is God's appointed way for two people to reciprocally say to one another, I belong completely, permanently, and exclusively to you. That this is what I do to show you that I'm with you for life and nobody else. That it's not about consuming, it's not about a means to an end. It's about we have formed this commitment, we formed this place where we can experience this in a life-giving manner. So that leads us to God's good command against lust. God gives a good command against lust. If we flip forward to Matthew, so in the New Testament, you flip towards the back of your Bible. In Matthew 5, 27, Jesus is gonna touch on the issue of lust. So Matthew's towards the back of your Bible. It goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So if you get to Mark, Luke, or John, go back to the left and you will find Matthew 5. So this takes place in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is teaching his disciples and crowds have formed. And he's going through areas of life that he's trying to help them understand better. And in verse 27, he says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so what he's saying is that you have heard it said, which is an incredible way to say, and the 10 commandments that God gave you, the seventh commandment is that you shall not commit adultery. He says, but I tell you. He's like, I'm gonna reframe this command for you because what they've been doing is they drew a line in the stand and they said, as long as I'm not touching another person, I'm not committing adultery. And so they're sitting over here thinking all of these things about this person over there and going, well, I'm fine because I didn't touch them, so we're good. And Jesus reframes it. He says, if you look at a woman or a person lustfully, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. He says that spiritually speaking, you've committed this sin just as much in your heart as you had if you actually used your body to do it. He says, you've sinned, you've separated from yourself from God as much by looking, as much by dwelling on it as if you had actually done it. Now there's a consequence difference between the person who does lust and the person that actually commits the act. There's consequent differences in life, but he says, spiritually speaking, they're the same. So pastor and Bible scholar Warren W. Wiersbe says this, he talks about the look that Jesus mentioned. He says, the look that Jesus mentioned was not a casual glance, but a constant stare with the purpose of lusting. It is possible for a man to glance at a beautiful woman and know that she is beautiful, but not lust after her. The man Jesus described looked at the woman for the purpose of feeding his inner central appetites as a substitute for the act. It was not accidental, it was planned. So what he's talking about here is that It is possible to notice that another person is attractive without falling into lust. So pretend you're driving home and you notice someone jogging and you look over and you notice they're attractive. If you just keep driving, then everything's fine. You haven't done anything wrong. There's no sin there. But if you're driving and you notice someone's jogging and they're attractive and then you slow the car down and you follow them for a couple blocks, then we're in trouble. We have crossed over into a place that is sin. Or if you notice them jogging and you don't slow down, but you just drive right on by, but the rest of the car ride home, you think about what would it be like to be with them sexually? Then in that instance, you have entered again into this area of you're using and consuming them for your own enjoyment. And the other thing with this is that often action starts in the heart. What starts as lust that we didn't put to death, we didn't deal with, grows and grows and grows and grows until it becomes an action. So put all this sexual stuff over here for a minute and just think about vacation, vacation, okay? So my guess is a lot of you, you see a photo of some place you love to vacation, whether it's the beach, whether it's the mountains, or whether it's some city, but you see the, the place you like to go and then you begin to think about, oh, wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't it be awesome to be there? And then you begin looking at airline tickets. Then you begin looking at Airbnbs. Then you begin calling your parents and saying, hey, can you watch the kids? And then you're driving their kids to the parents. And then you're dropping them off. And then you're, dri- you're flying. And then before you know it, you're on the beach. You're like, this is amazing. In the same way, I think that if you ask some people that actually committed adultery, if you go, where did this start? They'd say, well, it started with me having these thoughts and not doing anything with them. And what happened is it grew and it grew. And so then there started to be these steps taken closer and closer until I had crossed over that line and I actually committed adultery. And so it's important important for us to deal with this when it's in our heart before it becomes more. So why is it that lust is such a big deal? There's two quick reasons here. One, lust separates us from God. Lust separates us from God. So in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, it says or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of god do not be deceived neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters nor adulterers nor men who have sex with men nor thieves nor the greedy nor drunkards nor slanderers nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of god and what and that is what some of you were but you were washed you were sanctified you were justified in the name of the lord jesus christ and by the spirit of our god so Paul was writing to a church in Corinth and he's listing all these different things out. And my guess is that there's at least one person in his church that deals with every one of, like, deals with each one of those things. And he's saying, this is who you used to be. That you used to be a drunkard or you used to be a swindler or you used to be greedy or you used to be sexually immoral. And then there came to this point where you said, I don't want this as much as I want Jesus. He said, I'll give this up in exchange for Jesus. And he says, because of that, you were washed you were sanctified, you were made new, that you're no longer those things. He says, but if you had decided instead, you know, I want this thing, whether it's sexual morality, whether it's greed, whether, whatever it is, he says, if I want this more than I want Jesus, he says, then it's gonna separate you. You're not gonna inherit the kingdom. You're gonna get that thing and you're gonna miss out on Jesus. And so this is so important because it separates us from God, which Jesus will touch on in a minute. The second reason it's so important is because lust treats people as objects to be consumed. It treats people as objects to be consumed. So when you drive by and you see that person jogging and you begin to think about them in a way that's inappropriate, you don't think about, you know, what's your personality like? What happened to them before they went on this jog? What's gonna happen to them after they go on this jog? What else is happening in their life? They just become an object. They become a tool for you to use for your own personal enjoyment that their, their personality, the image of God in them has been ripped away and all they have become is something for you to use for your own enjoyment. And there is no area in which this is more true than in pornography. Pornography is completely about consumption. Viewing another person's body without any thought for, that, for their personality, who they are, what matters to them, or what will happen to them either before or after this video or photo was created. They are used, consumed, and tossed aside. There's an organization called Fight the New Drug, and they compiled a number of studies about pornography. And what they found is people that viewed pornography have increased loneliness, sexual dissatisfaction, and couple conflict. Pornography also lowers self-esteem, creates poor mental health, negative body image, and lower life satisfaction. It decreases relationship quality, relationship satisfaction, and romantic attachment, and likely contributes to sexual dysfunction in both men and women. And on top of that, pornography also normalizes violent and aggressive sexual behavior, as well as being destructive to those that are participating in the making of the video. Many participants... In the creation of pornography, are human trafficking victims that are being forced to participate. And there is no way for the person viewing the video to know whether or not the person is being forced against their will to make the video. And so it consumes people. It does not treat them as people to be loved or cared for or committed to, it doesn't treat them like they have the image of God, it treats them as objects. So God cares about this. So He calls us to fight. So this leads us to God's good call to fight. God's good call to fight. In Matthew five twenty nine through 30, Jesus goes on. So he tells them they've already committed adultery in their heart if they're doing this. And then he says, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. So don't miss this twice. He uses similar subjects. So he says, first, if your eye causes you to sin, rip it out and throw it away. It's better for you to have one eye and make it into heaven than to have two eyes and get tossed into hell. Then he moves on to your hand. He says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for that to be cut off and tossed aside and you to get into heaven with one hand than to have two hands and get tossed into hell. Now, Jesus is not literally calling us to remove body parts, but what he is calling us to is to take our sin seriously. He's saying, do you take this seriously? That if it was, if it was a body part that was literally causing you to sin, would you remove it? Would you do whatever was required, whatever is necessary in order to remove that so that you could, you could experience this relationship that would lead to heaven? Or would you rather say, I want this thing more, I'm going to hang on to that and remain separated from him? So there's a pastor named John Owen. He's an old pa- time pastor, and he says, Be killing sin or it will be killing you. He says, Be killing sin or it will be killing you. There's no middle ground with sin. Either it is killing you or you're going to have to try and kill it. There is no middle ground that as long as it's hanging around, it is going to destroy you and the people around you. And so he says, you got to put it to death. So let me, with the remainder of my time, I want to give you a few steps to fight lust. A few steps to fight lust. So one, turn to God for help. We turn to God for help. This is the first and most important. We turn to God for help. In Romans 13, 14, it says, rather clothe yourselves but the Lord Jesus Christ, do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. The first step is to say, God, I need your help. God, I can't do this on my own. Without you, I am gonna be defeated by this. God, would you help me to love you more than I love my sin? God, would you help me to see the damage this is doing to myself, to people around me? God, would you rescue me? Would you help me, God? And he says, we focus on Jesus and we don't focus. How do I gratify the desires of my flesh? So the first question is, do you believe that you actually won't defeat lust without the Holy Spirit's help? Or do you think, I've got this. I'll quit whenever I want. I just don't want to quit yet. Or do you realize that I need the Holy Spirit? I need Jesus' help in order to overcome this. The second step, the second step is to hate your sin. You have to actually hate your sin. You have to hate that you do this. Hate that you want to treat people this way. Hate that you'd want to consume someone else this way. You have to hate it. Colossians 3, 5 says, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Says, put these things to death. He doesn't say coddle them. He doesn't say just put on the back burner. You'll get around it to it someday. No, he says put it to death because it will lead to your destruction if you don't. So the question is, do you truly believe that your lust will lead you to destruction or do you just say it's not that big of a deal? Do you say it's not that big of a deal? It's not gonna lead me to commit adultery. It's not gonna lead me to do this stuff. I'm not gonna treat people that way. It's no big deal. Or do you go, this is serious. I need to address this before it gets worse, before I harm more people. And the next question is, do you actually want to stop? Or do you just think that you should? Because there's a big difference between wanting to stop and hating your sin and going, I'd hate that I do this. I hate that this exists in my heart. I want this to get out. I don't want this to be here. That is totally different than the person that just goes, yeah, I know I should want to stop, but I don't. I don't. I don't want to. It's not that big of a deal. I'll stop when I'm ready. There's a big difference. And so what steps are you taking to kill your sin? What steps are you taking to say I hate this so much I'm going to limit its impact on my life? So here's a couple of examples of things you could do. One, you could install internet filtering or mon- or monitoring and monitoring on your phone, on your computer, on your Wi-Fi at home. Do you have barriers to make it so that it's hard for pornography to find you because it's out there looking for you? It's not hard to find. And do you have steps that makes it difficult if you start to get weak that you have barriers between you and it? Another thing you could do is you could choose to not watch certain movies or TV shows because you know they contain content that's gonna lead you to lust. Lust. Like the reality is there are so many TV shows, so many movies, and they tell you up front, they say this is TV mature for nudity or this is rated R for nudity, and you can make a choice then and say, you know, it's just not worth it. Like this isn't for me. Like other people might be able to watch this, but I can't watch this without it taking me to a place that I don't wanna be. And I wanna defeat this. And so I'm not gonna give it an inch. I'm not gonna give it any ground to grow in my life. I'm going to put this to death because I wanna be free. I don't want to just cage this. I want to be free from this. Which leads us to the third step. This third step is to address the source of sin. We have to address the source of sin, not just deal with the symptoms, but get right down to the source. Matthew fifteen nineteen says, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. Says so it's all these things that comes out of your heart. And what can be tempting to do is to say, We're gonna, I'm just gonna stop the slandering. I'm just gonna stop the sexual immorality, but not get to the heart, to not get to where the source of it's coming from. And so what we do is we can cage and try and control the thing, but never have our heart transformed. And that's not freedom. Freedom is not saying, well, I want to do it, but I stop myself from doing it. Freedom is going, I don't wanna do this anymore. I don't have the desire to do this anymore. That when the desire comes up, I go, I don't like that I think this. Or I don't like that I want to do this. God, would you change me that I never had this thought again? And that leads to actual freedom. But that means we, have to new, we need a new heart, which goes back to why we need Jesus. Because we need him to give us a new heart that would say, I don't want to consume or mistreat or abuse people like this. I don't want to use them like this. I want to treat them like they are image bearers created in God's image, treat them with the value and worth that they have. Fourth step is to get in community. Get in community. James 5.16 says, Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. So do you have someone in your life that you can confess your sins to? Do you have someone that you can go to and you can say, here's the things that I struggled this, with this week. Here's the places that I fell. Whether it be in greed, anger, lust, or whatever it is. But you can say, I, I yelled at my kids this week or I, I lusted after this person and that person. But you can say, like, this is where I failed. Would you pray for me? Do you have someone in your life that you can do that with? Because as long as you don't, then the gospel is theoretical and It's not real. But when you have someone that you can share that stuff with and they don't run away, but instead they say, hey, I'll pray for you. That this is not how God defines you. This isn't how I define you. God's grace and mercy is working in your life. You can say, no, we can do this. So as a staff, each member of the staff has an accountability partner, at least one, if not a couple of people that can ask difficult questions again, in any area of life, whether it's anger or greed or lust or whatever it might be, that can say, hey, how is this going? How have your eyes been? What's your thought life been like? How are you doing in this? Because we want to win. We want to defeat this. We don't want to live in this place. We want to um, live in a better kingdom, live in a better way. So I'd encourage you, If you're in a life group, find someone with the same gender in your life group and do this for one another. Say, hey, can I I talk with you and we can pray together? If you don't have a life group, I'd encourage you to come to R3 on Monday nights. R3 is a fantastic place where people can be vulnerable and they can be honest about their struggles, whether it's um, lust or any other struggle. And there are people that will rally around them and encourage them and make the gospel tangible to them. And so I encourage you, if you need a place, R3 is a fantastic place. So here's what we do. We turn to God for help. We hate our sin. We address the source of our sin. And then we get in community. This is what we do as we fight against sin, as we fight against lust, because we want so badly to treat people as people. We want to treat people as image bearers that have value and worth because God says they have value and worth. So we don't want to turn them into objects or photos or videos that are consumed and tossed aside. So as we close, I want you to know that I love you, that I'm not up here to point a finger at anybody. I'm up here to say, I want you to be free. I don't want you to be consumed by this, chained by this. I want you to be free. And Jesus is offering freedom. He's offering forgiveness. He's offering life. I want you to know that lust matters to God because people matter to God that he cares about these people that appear in these videos or these photos. He cares about that person that jogs down the street. He cares about them. He created them to be more than an object. He gave them value and worth and he wants you to be someone who shows they have value and worth. He doesn't want us as citizens of his kingdom to mistreat and abuse people. And so this is why it matters. The other reason that it matters is what we do in this area will affect how we see God. God. In Matthew five, verse eight, Jesus is talking the Beatitudes. And he says, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. It says, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. Because if you begin to objectify another person, it affects how you see God. That you will not see the image of God in them that God has placed in them. And as you devalue people, you will begin to think that God devalues people. And if you think God devalues people, you will think he devalues you. And you will think less and less about yourself, that you have less value. And you will miss the beauty and the wonder and the awe of God. And so the thing that is most powerful in this fight is when your heart gets to the place where you say, I want you more than everything else, God. And you see that whatever this sin is, this is gonna separate me from you. It's gonna make it more difficult for me to see your face to know your heart. And so I'm saying no to this because I want you, God. I wanna be close to you and I don't want this to push me away or pull me away. I want you, God, and so I'm saying no to this because I know that you are the true source of my life and this will rob me of that. That is where you will find the source and the victory over your sin. So as citizens of another kingdom, we want our hearts and our desire, we want our hearts desire to want him more than anything else. Would you pray with me? Father God, God, we love you. God, we thank you that you reveal this to us, that you share this with us. God, that you didn't have to. You could have created this and then said, good luck, figure it out. But instead you, give us the manual. You tell us how to use this for our good and for your glory and for uh, our flourishing. And God, I want to pray for anybody in this room right now that has been misused, mistreated, and abused. God, that they know what it is to be mistreated. God, would you please bring them healing? Would you please bring them help? Would Would you please bring them your comfort? Would you help them to know, God, that you still see their value and their worth. That though others may try to have taken it or tried to misuse it, God, you still see it. You still sent your son to die for them, to love them and care for them. And God, I I pray for anybody in this room who has been the one to objectify, to dehumanize another person. God, for that person that has done that, God, I pray that you would help them to know that God, you love them. You care deeply for them and you want them to experience freedom. You want them to find a better way of life, to live in your kingdom, to live with this new joy of not treating people that way. And God, I pray that you would um, help set people free today. For those that are stuck, God, would you um, break their chains as they look to Jesus for help. Pray this on your son's name, amen.